This is Alan Cross, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine, episode 42, for Friday, November 18th, 2011. Well, today I'm very pleased to bring you an interview with writer, producer, author, and director, Alan Cross. Now, he's worked on some cool titles, uh, everything from Desperate Housewives to Star Trek Enterprise, Dawson's Creek, and a whole bunch more, including co-developing this the TV version of the movie Weird Science. You may have remembered that fun movie uh, by John Hughes in the 80s. Well, he co-developed the TV show that went for several seasons in the mid-90s. So great, great interview. It's actually a full video interview. I'm sure you're going to love it. Before we get to the interview, I do want to remind you that there is some homework on the table, and that is to purchase Pam Douglas's Writing the TV Drama Series. Her third edition is out. You can get that at tvwriterpodcast.com. Go to the store page and uh, click on the mini store and you can find that book or you might already have it. Make sure to read through that book and submit your questions because I'm interviewing her on November 25th. So you got to get your questions in by November 24th. And one person who submits questions for the interview will win a copy of Ross Brown's book, bite-sized television, create your own TV series for the internet. And Ross Brown will be on the podcast coming soon uh, in early January. So you definitely want a copy of that book. It just sounds really interesting. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I definitely will um, over the next little bit. But big thanks to Michael Weezy Productions for facilitating this contest and these interviews. So very, very cool stuff. This week's video tips is a little longer than usual, so it's going to be at the end of the podcast. That said, it's a subject that I'm sure is going to be relatable to quite a few of you, and that is holding the camera steady. Now, this may be for a still camera, for a camcorder, or a DSLR. Uh, if you have any of the above, I urge you to stick around after the interview and hear all about it. But speaking of interview, let's roll with my video interview with Alan Cross. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with writer, producer, author, and director, Alan Cross. How you doing, Alan? I'm doing good. I'm doing good, Gray. Very, very cool. Well, I appreciate you coming on in full video. This is a, this is a treat, because not everybody does. <laughs> yeah. I try to live in the 21st century as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Very, very cool. And, uh, and so we are in the 21st century now, but we always go way back and go to... Uh, the very beginning. Where did you grow up? Because I, I knew you you did your BA in in uh, at USC, but uh, right. did you grow up in in California? No, actually, I was uh, born and raised in Alaska. I was wow. born, yeah, born in Fairbanks, Alaska. Mm -hmm. Father was a pilot, and uh, my grandfather was uh, an Alaskan bush pilot. So wow, yeah, I, I I grew up in a spot that's about as far removed from Hollywood as you can get. Uh huh. But, uh, yeah, an amazing place to grow up. And living there, you appreciate the beauty of a state like that. But mm -hmm. my own personal, you know, experience was I kind of realized I wouldn't want to live in Alaska my whole life. Mm -hmm. And growing up there, the weather is so severe that you end up staying 
a lot of the times indoors because you have to. Yeah. And you watch a lot of TV, you know, <laughs> and uh, that's sort of, you know, television and TV shows and genre shows are things that I've always been attracted to and always mm -hmm. loved. I'm, I'm an old science fiction, you know, geek from way back, Star yeah. Trek. I think my very first memory of a television show is Fireball XL5, an old Jerry Anderson, uh -huh. you know, show from the early 60s. So anyway. Uh, very, very cool. Well, I, I wasn't in Alaska and I was a TV junkie when I grew up. So <laughs> a lot of the same <laughs> stuff too. Um, so you, you did end up in Los Angeles at USC. How did that happen? Right. Well, you know, growing up, uh, I was convinced that I was going to wind up becoming a commercial artist. I always loved to draw mm -hmm. and, um, you know, I loved comic books and I thought, well, maybe I'll become a comic book artist, writer. And I left Alaska in 79 to go to uh, an art school down in Oakland, California, uh, just down the street from Berkeley, mm -hmm. a place called the California College of the Arts. I believe that's what it's called now. It's called something a little differently back then. But my first year of art school, I'm drawing, I'm taking all these amazing classes, but I'm also watching TV and mm -hmm. I'm living on my own for the first time. And uh, again, television was one of my only friends because I did this thing where I left my home state. I moved to a place I'd never been to before. I didn't know anybody, and it mm -hmm. was it was the biggest sort of social shock I'd ever experienced because I remember very clearly knowing I would walk down the street and no one would know me, no mm. one would call out my name or anything. <laughs> like that. The school when I first got there, school was a few weeks away still, you know, so I hadn't met anybody in class yet. Yeah. And eventually, over the course of the school year, like anybody else, you make friends and you start to socialize and it becomes more and more, you know, a home for you. But until that point, I watched a lot of TV. And I remember, and this is all towards answering your question, that eventually I bought a book at a store. And I think it was, it was something standard called the Television Writer's Handbook. Mm -hmm. And I had loved sitcoms. And you watch enough good TV to be inspired by the writing and the acting. In my case, I loved, and this instantly dates me, but I loved Taxi and I loved the mm -hmm. old American more show these classic sitcoms and before that the dick van dyke show and reruns and stuff like that and i appreciated a great smart joke you know well told and and beautifully delivered by a professional actor or actress mm -hmm. loved it you know i loved watching those shows but because there's a lot of television i'd see a lot of bad tv too and in my head i thought well, somebody got paid to write this line. <laughs> I could be that bad, and maybe there's money in this. So I bought this television writer's handbook, and um, I studied it. Uh -huh. And I was curious, how do you actually write a television script? Um, and the book kind of laid it all out and said, listen, if you want to write for television, you have to learn the format. You have to know what the words look like on the page. Mm -hmm. And they advised me to go ahead and call up the production company of your favorite television series and ask them to send you a script. Really? And I well, that sounds kind of like, you know, who would really take the time to do that? But I thought, well, what the hell? So they gave, they, I think they actually had some numbers listed in the back of the book of big network, you know, uh -huh. uh, 
contact numbers. And I actually got a hold of the taxi production office really? and I asked some assistant on the phone. I said, hey, you know, I'm a student. I'd love to write for television. Is it possible I could get a script? And there was a pause. I remember the voice saying, you know, all right, what's your address? And I gave them, the, gave them my address. And two weeks later, I had a script delivered. Wow. It was really cool. Was like, oh my god, I've actually got a real taxi produced script in my hands, and uh-huh. I'm beginning to study it. And anyway, I'm getting into a detailed answer, but it was it was my first year of art school. It was finding a book on how to write for television, and and entering. Well, let me back up. I wrote a spec taxi script, uh-huh. and I entered it. I entered that script into a college. Uh, contest, mm-hmm. open up students hoping to break in. And I wound up winning. I won uh, like $1,500 and a wow. note from the, uh, a producer named Danny Arnold, mm-hmm. who created the Barney Miller show. That's wow. his big claims to fame. And uh, it was positive reinforcement. My very first script was entered in a contest and it won an award and a, a little cash prize. And I thought, great, you know, maybe this is a sign I can actually do this. Uh-huh. So uh, that was in 1980, I believe. And I would not actually get a professional job for another 10 years. Wow. And over the course of that time, I spent writing more scripts and going to school and, you know, graduating from college and going out into the workforce and making my living as a production assistant. By that point, um, I'd gone from art school in Oakland, I moved back home to Washington State. My parents had moved from Alaska. They're living in Washington near Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, decided I don't want to become a comic book artist anymore. I think I want to try and make my living as a screenwriter, a television writer. Going to, uh, <laughs> let's see, what was the name of this, this college? There was a school in Olympia, Washington. Matt Groening went there. He's like the only other. I'm blanking on the name of it right now. Um, Evergreen, Evergreen mm-hmm. State College in Olympia, Washington, which was this sort of uh, extreme liberal art school where they didn't even give out grades. Oh, but yeah. they had an amazing uh, film program and lots of brand new equipment. So you could get your hands on cameras. And, and so I officially sort of entered the world of filmmaking. And at that school, one of my teachers said, listen, if you're serious about becoming a filmmaker, you know, or a screenwriter, you should move to Los Angeles. So it was the fact that I had written this script, that I liked these filmmaking classes, and uh, a teacher saying, go to Los Angeles, get yourself there, you know, on the scene. Mm-hmm. And the two big choices in Los Angeles were USC and UCLA, of course. They both have these amazing film programs. And uh, it was just fate that when I decided to actually apply to these schools, UCLA's deadline had already come and gone. I'd missed mm-hmm. that deadline completely. USC was still open for enrollment. So a friend and I, a good friend from Alaska, uh, we had both decided that we would apply to USC's film program. We both got accepted by the school, mm-hmm. but not the cinema program, which is very, uh, you know, as you know, the USC program is regarded as one of the best in the country, and, mm-hmm. and it's really hard to get into. So it didn't happen that easily. We were both rejected from the from the uh, actual film program. And that's a potential turning point because at that point, 
both of us could have said, well, all right, we didn't get into USC. Oh, well, where else can we go? Hmm. But USC had a summer orientation program that uh, allowed you to come out to the school and kind of look at the campus, take a tour, and ask questions. Yeah. And I decided, well, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll go out there and I'll take this little tour and I'll find out more about the film program and what's possible and maybe I'll reapply. Maybe there's still a shot I can get into USC. And I go out there and what I discovered was USC offered a lot of filmmaking classes that were open to students regardless of whether or not they were in the filmmaking program. Oh, okay. So I thought, you know what, I'll go to school here. And uh, I ended up reapplying to the program. On the second try, I got accepted and uh, studied there uh, and graduated. Um, while I was at USC, Robert McKee, who uh, you probably oh, yeah. have oh, of, or maybe you've even taken his course, uh, Robert McKee was teaching Screenwriting 101 at wow. USC. So his course was basically my first, you know, full-on screenwriting class. And I got to tell you, Gray, it was everything I'd ever wanted in one class. In my search to know, you know, how do you begin to structure a script? How do you, mm -hmm. how do you begin to understand character plot and all the dynamics of writing a great script? You know, McKee came across as this old, wise sage who was imparting, you know, the wisdom of the ages to yeah. you. And... uh I really liked it. I thought he was great. And everything he said seemed to make sense. Um, and there are elements of his teaching that I think are just ingrained in me now. And mm. you don't kind of sit down and go, let's see, what are the five steps of, you know, dramatic construction? But yeah, you know, those lessons are kind of instilled on you. And, uh, he was, he was a good teacher. I really enjoyed his class. Oh, and I know his, his story book. Um, after reading it, I got it on audiobook and I listened it, listened to it on my iPod as I did anything. And I, I literally have probably listened to him read story 10 times. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, an incredible guy. Yeah. And it's kind of odd to me, or maybe not so odd, but it's interesting that a man who knows so much about the craft of storytelling hasn't had more commercial success hmm. selling scripts himself so you know i guess there is kind of a divide or so there's something you know to be said about you know writing it and teaching it the craft of writing are kind of two different muscles mm -hmm. and it's because in, in my professional experience being in a writer's room with uh comedy writers there are comedy writers who are incredibly funny just personally mm -hmm. i mean Everything out of their mouth is a joke, and they're able to instantly riff off of whatever you say. Mm -hmm. you, you can tell them what you had for breakfast this morning, and they turn it into this like really funny gag or joke, and they're hysterical. And yet, when they turn in their scripts, you go, "Oh my god, this this isn't as good." You know, this yeah. this isn't. It's like being naturally funny and being able to mechanically sit down and and write jokes on a page aren't necessarily. Um, compatible talents you know mm. it's it's really interesting i mean there are guys that are really funny in the room and they're great script writers but my point is sometimes there's a really funny guy in the room who can't really write mm -hmm. to save their lives you know yeah. so it's just kind of odd it's kind of weird how that 
that plays out. But that's been my experience just in meeting the people I've met on the, on the course of my career. Mm, cool. So, so you finished at USC 85? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, and, 85. And, uh, and then your first IMDb credit is Dr. Doctor in 89. Yeah. So what, uh, what happened in between those two? Well, let's see, uh, graduate, you know, you either graduate USC film school and you've directed a, um, uh, you've directed a great student film that gets you noticed by Steven Spielberg and you become his protege and you live happily ever after, uh-huh. or you get a job as a production assistant, you know, yeah. you get a job as a runner someplace. So I, uh, I fell into the latter category. Um, and I, I got a job on the Disney lot, mm-hmm. on the Disney studio lot in Burbank. And I worked for their finance department as a runner. So mm-hmm. it was just basic. I'm on the lot. Great. You know, it was, um, it was, uh, an exciting place to be. Studio lots, um, aren't usually spectacular environments, you know, to look around. You see a bunch of big, you know, industrial looking sound stages. Mm-hmm. But to actually be on a lot in the Disney lot back in uh, 86, 87, when I started working there was in transition. So it was uh, the traditional animation buildings. And there's a portion of the lot where there's a 40s art deco sensibility at work. Mm Kind of cool. You know, the interior of the animation building on the Disney lot is really just kind of warm and inspiring because I have all this great animation art on the mm. walls and it's like, Oh, you know, the, the, the hallmark, the, the tradition, the, the, the glory of that, of the Disney empire is on full display. Yeah. But there's another portion of the lot that was temporary office housing. They were just, uh, trailers that had electrical hookups and had been converted into offices with spaces and stuff. Wow. I got a job as, a runner, as I was saying, uh, a year at that job, which was basically, you know, riding a bicycle around delivering papers from one department to another. I applied and got a job as a script reader for the Disney Sunday movie. And that's probably like 87. Mm-hmm. And it was a great job because um, you would sit in a room, big stack of screenplays. And you would pull one off the top, read it, write up a report, summarize the plot, write uh, an opinion, you know, is the writing any good? Why is it good or why is it not good? Do you recommend it? You know, should my boss meet with these writers? Yes or no. What I took away from that job was that uh, there's everybody talks about Hollywood being super competitive mm-hmm. for a neophyte writer or a writer who who hopes to break in, people are going to tell you, oh, you'll never get, break in. It's too competitive. You know, you'll, you'll, you don't stand a chance. The numbers are staggering. There are yeah. a lot of people writing screenplays. What I learned from that job is there's only a fraction of those people writing screenplays that can do it professionally, you know, at a certain professional level. Mm-hmm. An even smaller percentage of that number do it really well. Wow. You know? So I would read the stack of scripts and realize that I'd say 90% of them weren't very good. They just mm-hmm. weren't very good at all. And a smaller percentage were, uh, you know, were, were decent. And the one or two I go, one or two I, I would get excited about. It's like, oh my God, this is a great spec feature. This is, 
most of most of what I was reading were respect features. So, you know, it it became a, a wake up call to me that, yeah, you know, the your real competition is a much smaller number than the big total of people who are pumping out screenplays on a, you know, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, the other fun thing about that job was as a script reader, um, which is a pretty lowly position, it's an entry level position. And if you look on Craigslist, people are asking, you know, people want are looking for people to write coverage, not even pay you. you oh know? yeah. Like, or it's like, it's nothing. But so I point, point being a lowly position, an entry level position. The only place they had to put me when I actually got the job was the uh, office of a former executive producer who had just been fired and <laughs> left. And he'd, taken, he'd, he'd had this huge custom built office that they, they plucked me in the middle of. Uh-huh. And, uh, it was it was amazing. They had a television set and a glass coffee table, and they had blown out a wall and made it a big, you know, uh, window that overlooked a special garden he had uh-huh. made, and and it was just a, a beautiful couch, and it was about the size of you know, uh, it was just enormous, like the size of somebody's living room. It was just wow. a fantastic office, and there I was, you know, in one one tiny corner of this office. You know, lying back on this couch reading my stack of scripts. <laughs> this is just like too good to be true. Wow. And, that... I, and I had that office for about a year, you know. A year. My, said, my boss said, Alan, I would take this office myself, except I'm already set up and it's just too much of a pain for me to move all my stuff in here and reset the phone lines and stuff. So here you go. Wow. You, you, you must have felt like Michael J. Fox in Secret of My Success. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, that was... You know, and I, yeah, to this day, even though I've had much, you know, much better jobs, that's still the best office I've ever had. So, wow. you know, I mean, in, in, in contrast, uh, when I broke in professionally, I teamed up with a writing partner who's a old friend of mine from Alaska. And when I finally had my first professional writing job, which I guess was technically doctor, doctor, but my first staff job where mm-hmm. we would go to work every day, the office they put us into was a narrow, tiny little room that they were using to stack uh, pallets of Coke and Pepsi. And they literally, you know, wow. they, they told the guy, clean out this little back room office thing. And that became our office, this narrow kind of shoebox of an office. So wow. there you go. Well, Hollywood baby. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's fascinating, fascinating. They, and and yet you think that people esteem the TV writing jobs, and yet you you have a tiny little office, and the reader gets the huge one. Exactly. Yeah. So so, yeah. so but you're you're on staff now. So so tell me what that felt like actually yeah. uh, being on staff and being in the room and and starting to write professionally. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful. It's uh uh. You know, Dr. Doctor was a freelance assignment. Mm -hmm. What got us that job was coming up with a great Murphy Brown spec Mm. that they just worked and kind of hit all hit on all cylinders and everybody loved it. Um, My first job was working for Paul Haggis on a show called City, Mm -hmm. which was a a sitcom that starred Valerie Harper. And this was uh, tail end of 1989. Mm-hmm. So 89, 90. And um, it was staffed by about a dozen comedy writers. 
And uh, my partner and I were the new kids on the block. And it's I tell people being the new staff writers is a great position to be in because there's very little that's actually expected of you. Mm. Um, they want you to contribute. And it's great if you throw out a joke that everybody likes and, you know, uh, gets put in the, you know, into the script. But there's very little pressure on you. The pressure, of course, is on the showrunner and all the seasoned veterans. And it turned out to be a great time to uh, ultimately surprise and impress the rest of the staff. They gave us uh, a script. They told us to go away, you know, write this. We hope it's good. And we handed in something that exceeded their expectations. And uh, the, the way it worked back then, I'm sure it still does, is a writer's script gets distributed amongst the staff and all the writers um, uh, take turns reading characters. You know, everyone's assigned a character and we sort of mm -hmm. read the script out loud. And, you know, the, when the you get a professional comedy writer who's reading the jokes and reading them well, um, you know, what your intent is actually realized in the room and people laugh and they realize a good joke. And, you know, the, the reaction was terrific. Wow. Being in a writer's room with a dozen guys you know, like I started to say before, a dream come true for me. If I die later on this afternoon, I had a dream to become a professional, you know, television writer, and that dream came true. So I'm very happy with my life so far. Wow. <laughs> uh, being in this room was great because these 12 guys were just naturally funny, and they were exhibitionists. And when they told stories, some of them would get up on top of the table and, <laughs> you know, they were, it's very liberating and you're laughing all the time. Wow. And it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. There's a complete sort of, um, freedom and a sense of wonder and, and, uh, uh, just very happy. It's very mm. happy. You know, it's a great way to spend the day. I can't think of, a better way to spend a day than to be in a writer's room with a dozen people all concentrating on a story and trying to make it funnier and better. Um, that's, that's the most optimistic, best version of the job. And of course I experienced, you know, equally pleasant uh, job situations since then. And unfortunately some job situations that were just a pain mm. and, and the darker side of having a job and working on a script, uh, that you didn't believe in or you knew mm. was going to be rewritten and, you know, things come up there just completely out of your control. Mm. I tell people that, that the, the kind of the dark side of working on a sitcom is, uh, the hours, the hours are mm. just phenomenal. You know, you're there 14 hours a day. Uh, I had a job later on in my career working on Veronica's closet, which was just horrible <laughs> in terms of, uh, the work and in terms of the hours, uh, just a complete, you know, disaster. So sitcom writing, is great. And what I loved about it was the fact that, yeah, you know, you, you would write a joke, it would go into the script. And a couple days later, the actors would, you know, we would have a table read and you'd hear the actors say your words, which wow. is cool. And then at the end of the week, you're actually putting on a show. It's still a version of it's a live film before an audience kind of show. Mm -hmm. And you hear an audience 
So it either laughs at your joke, you know, yay, it worked, or kind of doesn't get the joke or doesn't laugh. You kind of go, all right, reality check. Let's let's fix that. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the whole, you know, Friday night shoot thing. Mm. And I'm, I'm sure you've probably been to sitcom, you know, um, live studio audience, you know, shoots. And if you're in the audience, it's actually kind of grueling for the most part, because what most people don't realize is you're watching the audience is having to watch the same scene you know, oh, three to four yeah. times. Yeah. Until until the director and the producers kind of sign off and say, OK, that's great. We've got it. Let's move on to the next scene. Uh-huh. And it's always a stand up comic who's working to try and keep you awake and your energy. Anyway, but from my perspective, sitting off to one side. You know, watching the actors, you know, going through the scene. And if your joke is successful and gets a laugh, nothing better. Mm. Nothing better. And, you know, it's something I've read in other interviews with comedians and stand-up comics. Why they, why do they do it? Why do they brave getting up on stage and, and risking, you know, humiliation and failure? Is that when they do pull it off and they do succeed, you know, this is like nothing better. You know, mm. to hear an audience laugh at your joke. That's, a great thing. And for anybody out there who's, you know, maybe watching this and going, you know, well, do I really want to do this? Do do I really want to devote myself to can I really break in? You know, I, I always say to people, be tenacious. You know, it's 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 rarely easy. It usually does take work. You have to come up with a great script, but yeah, it's completely worth it to yeah. me. Oh, it's like when it's great, it's great. So, very very cool. Well, so yeah. so after that, you you did uh, three or four years on Park Lewis can't lose. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and so I, I'm not familiar with that show. Was that another comedy? Yeah, it was. It was a, a half hour single camera show. Mm-hmm. Which um, you know the difference between a half hour sitcom is there's four five cameras now. How many cameras there are? And it's shot before a live audience, like a stage play, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, Parker Lewis was, uh, well, in retrospect, it was sort of like the first version of Malcolm in the Middle. Maybe mm. more people would remember Malcolm in the Middle because it's a more recent show. Parker Lewis Can't Lose was a half-hour single-camera show that was essentially a live-action cartoon. And by that, I mean that the style, the visual style of the show used every kind of uh, fast-paced, energized camera trick Mm. you think of. There were, you know, whip pans and, you know, uh, powerful zoom-ins and pullbacks. And just everything was about speed and energy and uh, creating like this kind of live cartoon style for the audience. Sound effects, you know. Interesting because you're taught in school never direct on the page. That's sort of an old screenwriting 101 thing is leave the directing to the director. Just keep your your stage direction sparse and to the point. But the creator of Parker Lewis is a guy named Clyde Phillips. And i got to give it to Clyde. He created a uh, page style, a, a writing style that insisted – you direct on the page. Mm-hmm. He wanted us to write to give the direct to challenge the directors almost, so that an episode of Parker Lewis can't lose. You know, uh, just had all this energy and and uh, this own kind of language. I remember a writer like two seasons into Parker Lewis 
you know, was laughing because he said, I can't believe the sentence I just wrote in a script. It was it was something like Parker Parker's to his locker where he finds Mikey Mikey Ian, you know, and it was like this coded. The point is, it was this coded language we had developed, this kind of shorthand. He wanted uh, every page to have this energy and style to it. Mm hmm. Wow. Mike Phillips is a style maven. You know, he's all about the look and the feel of uh, of a uh, of a story of a of, you know. And it was it was different. It was rule breaking, and I kind of liked it. And it mm. was fun. It was a great show to do. Um, another good thing about a half hour single camera show is it's shot like a little movie. Mm. And uh, one of the problems with sitcoms is you write a joke on Monday. You hear it at the table read. You hear the same joke, you know, at the run through. The days are going by. You hear it again and again. About the 20th time you've heard that same joke, everyone's kind of going, is that joke still funny? I don't think that joke's funny anymore. We should get rid of that joke. We should we should pitch on, on a new joke. There should be an, uh, a better joke here. And it's like, ah, oh, man. So my point being, in sitcoms, I, f I feel like there are needless rewriting of material. Sometimes it's justified. A lot of times I think it's just, you know, people get tired of hearing the same joke and it's not funny on the 20th, you know, rehearsal that you heard the thing. Mm -hmm. In a half hour single camera show, shot like a little film, the script is locked at the beginning of the production cycle on the mm -hmm. first day. Of shooting, no one's tampering with dialogue unless there's a special uh, incident or an occasion where an actor requests a line to be changed, or you know, it's largely locked in place. And you sit back and you enjoy watching the dailies come in, you know, mm. and, and hoping that the, that the director got what you wanted. So yeah, very cool. Better now, mo moving on a little bit. Um, Sure. I was really interested in one credit you have, and that's for Weird Science. It's uh, IMDb says that you, or actually your resume said you co-developed this yeah. uh, this show. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was uh, coming off of Parker Lewis. Our agents had us meet John Landis and Bob Weiss. Mm -hmm. uh, John Landis, I don't think I need to explain or him or give you his background famous director bob weiss is the producer of all the naked gun movies mm -hmm. and is this uh fun great guy anyway we had a meeting with john landis and bob weiss they had an overall deal at universal and the universal executives had decided hey let's look let's look at the list of movies that we own that might be uh, adapted into television series. And one of those movies was John Hughes' feature film, Weird Science, that starred uh, Kelly LeBrock and, uh, what is it, Anthony Michael Hall? Or, yeah. Yeah, I, I flip his name around sometimes, Michael Anthony Hall, Anthony Michael Hall. But anyway, um, it was, uh, it was, yeah, so, okay, a feature film that has a beginning, middle, and end, and you go home, how do you sustain that and turn it into an ongoing series? And Weird Science was basically about two teenage boys who create a magical woman using their computer and some synergy of occult magic, and they create their own, essentially their own genie. Hmm. And all right, you know, if you've seen the movie, you know how it plays out. I, 
I personally don't think it's one of John Hughes' better films. It's sort of this kind of loosely assembled collection of gags. And, you know, it has a he, – he was a pretty brilliant guy. So the story ultimately kind of flows and works together. And there's some really funny stuff in it. But our task was to make it into a TV show. Um, I had read uh, – because I'm, a, I'm an old science fiction fan. I read The Making of Star Trek. And mm-hmm. I was very familiar with how Gene Roddenberry had created Star Trek. And there were certain rules that he had put in, that he had come up with for sustaining a series. And I think I remembered them just in general principle. And um, my partner and I sat down trying to figure out, all right, so it's two teenage boys that have a magical woman that can give them anything they want. So why don't the two teenage boys in our first episode wish for a billion dollars and to live on a tropical island with all the women and, you know, everything they'd want in the world? End of series. How do you go week to week when this woman can give them anything? So thinking back to Roddenberry and how he established guiding principles, rules for how how the world of Star Trek would work, I thought, well, we got to figure out some basic kind of operating rules for weird science. And, you know, hitting on the idea that one of the rules is the magic woman, her name was Lisa. Lisa's magic powers were only temporary so that anything the boys wish for would only, you know, uh, be temporary. They could wish for a billion dollars, but the idea was at the time that the billion dollars actually came from someplace and eventually had to go back to where it originated from. And that, that idea was, was an eventually dropped, you know, the idea that we would actually pop to and see somebody in a bank vault, a big stack of money would, you know, suddenly disappear and wind up surrounded by the boys in their bedroom. That part of it kind of went away, but the rule that the magic was temporary was one that allowed us to tell stories on a weekly basis. Mm. And figuring that out, uh, everything else was just sort of looking at the template that John Hughes had set up and trying to emulate, you know, all the aspects of it that we thought were, you know, a, a sexy woman, two teenage boys, uh, funny dialogue, uh, and, you know, the libido and the wish fulfillment aspect of it. Um, and how, since we're doing a comedy, how their wishes go wrong, you mm. know, uh, they don't get the wording right and they, you know, they find themselves in a horrible situation as opposed to being, you know, in a wonderful situation. So, you know, figuring out the rules, figuring out how to do it on a week to week basis, taking the best parts of John Hughes's characters and their situations and then uh, I believe we wrote a pilot, pilot script, and uh, John Landis was great because he's, you know, one of the original 800-pound gorillas. Or he, had, he had a lot of power at the time. Um, he was able to kind of – he liked our pilot script, and so did Bob Weiss. And when Universal Executives – you know, wanted some fundamental changes in how the boys related to Lisa. Mm-hmm. You know, our feeling was – the boys would never actually sleep with her, that there would be some kind of brother-sister dynamic. And I remember the executive at Universal was like, well, shouldn't they sleep with her? And uh, 
And John Landis was like, no, dear God, you know, he sort of he was able to stand up to executives that had far more power than than I had, you know, at that level in my career um, and was able to defend us. And I always uh, I always like John for that. He, he kind of, you know, he made his wishes well known, that man. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so we, we shot. You know what was great about Weird Science was uh, how it sold. Universal had a deal where they owned a USA Network, or they owned a part of it. Mm-hmm. If I right. So when the executives at Universal decided, "Hey, we want to sell you this new show called Weird Science USA Network," and USA Network said, "Well, I don't know if we want to buy it," and the Universal executive said, "Oh no, you want to buy it." You know, so essentially, they didn't really have much of a choice. Uh-huh. Um, it was sold to USA Network. Uh, originally, it had been developed for Fox. And uh, we, we completed the pilot script, handed it into Fox. And Fox said, this is exactly the script that we would have made like three three weeks ago. But we're not doing this kind of show anymore. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so USA Network it was. Crazy business. And, the cool thing about USA Network was they gave us, uh, I think they gave us 12 or 13 episodes right off the bat before the pilot had even aired. Wow. So we knew that, yeah, we had an order to fill and uh, it allowed us to plan. And uh, our line producer, Robert Lloyd Lewis, um, I think he said, why don't we film the pilot third let's take one of your other episodes and make it the guinea pig hmm. and shoot it first because if the ser- when the series gets reviewed you have an opportunity to kind of make your mistakes on episodes that won't be featured in all the reviews hopefully the machine is up and the production machine is up and running by the time we film your pilot and that's the one that goes out to everybody hmm. that was pretty wise that was pretty wise cuz you know, we built all the sets. It was a brand new kind of experience for me. The idea of, all right, I'm not just a writer on an already established show. Now, you know, you have meetings with set designers and customers to establish a look and feel. And we were did, exec- executive producing. Yeah, we were. We were essentially. I think our titles were were not executive producers just yet. We were supervising or maybe we're co-exec or something at that point. But uh, John Landis, uh, Bob Weiss, and Leslie Bellsberg all had, I think, the executive producer, mm. you know, title on all this. But they were great. They were the greatest bosses to work for because they were all busy doing other things. And so they they left <laughs> uh, my partner and I, you know, alone to kind of do the brunt of the work. And you know, we had to sh- we had to pitch. John, Bob, and Leslie stories, and they would approve them. And then we would pitch their approved stories to Universal executives and then USA executives, and they all had to be approved. But yeah, they let us do all the work for the most part. Well, and they would come in and. Oh, oh sorry. And that, and that show went uh, three or four seasons, right? It did. It did. You know, once, uh, once the shows began to air on USA and they were happy with the rating we were getting, which was. I think it was uh, it debuted like 2.4, a 2.4 rating or something, which was, yeah, you know, I don't know what that means ultimately. I guess it was good enough. Um, 
And then uh, once it once it was on the air and they saw, oh, all right, you know, there's enough people watching this. They gave us an order for like 44 episodes or no. something. It was just like, oh, my God. Well, I know what I'm going to be doing for the next, you know, two years. That is crazy. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. And so, uh, and so I made my living by going to work at Universal Studios every day, which was, which was great. It was just fantastic. Wow. Uh, and uh, the show was really fun to do. And I had the, the experience of <clears throat> now it was my turn to hire a staff of writers and uh, read spec scripts and, and produced episodes and, and meet with writers. And it was, uh, it was really interesting. And, you know, I remember my, my wife came in one day and sat in the corner of my office and just watched the parade of department heads who would file into my office one by one, you know, with their questions and uh-huh. needing me to approve, you know, a costume or a special effect or, you know, whatever it was. And Weird Science was absolutely a fun show to do uh, because of the people you work with. But also we were satirizing television. You know, mm-hmm. we got point where we were always interested in, in, in satirizing things. We loved doing that. And we figured out that Weird Science was a great device for doing that. You know, we could, we could, uh, you, well, here's a, here's a particular story. Um, weird, there's an episode of Weird Science that was written by Kevin Murphy and Ed Ferrara. Mm-hmm. And their idea was that our two teenage heroes would have such an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, horror films, you know, slasher movies, mm-hmm. that they knew all the rules and would wi- would wind up being uh, teleported into a slasher film, oh. and then counting on those, counting on knowing those rules to kind of stay alive, at keeping one step ahead of the murder that was coming wow. out. So that was their idea, and this was about a year before Kevin Williamson came out with Scream, mm-hmm. and. I, I, Kevin Williamson had essentially the same idea. You know, let's do a horror film that's all about uh, the rules of a horror film, the rules of a slasher film. But, but my point is, you know, uh, my two writers, Kevin and Ed, had virtually the same idea. But they used that idea to make an episode of a television series. Kevin Williamson had that idea. And used it to write a feature script that sold and made him a millionaire. Wow. <laughs> so it's sort of like you get an idea and then it's what you do with it and and what kind of genre and format and how you sell that idea that can make the difference, all the difference in the world. Wow. And, you know, I, I make the point of saying, by the way, Kevin Williamson didn't rip off our idea, you mm. know. Um, uh, these ideas are out there in in the ether and you know that's just the way the world works yeah. but uh anyway yeah it yeah. was a good episode for us too we really, <laughs> we really- <laughs> wow very very cool well um we we have to speed up a little bit sure. um and uh maybe what we can do is uh after after weird science maybe catch me up to the present with with just some highlights like you you worked on a number of different shows veronica's veronica's closet get real dawson's creek star trek enterprise which i loved um she spies and as well you did some pilot writing in that time desperate housewives reaper Uh, now i understand a lot of those were were freelance scripts yeah yeah a good portion of those were freelance scripts 
Uh, friends of mine, you know, that had staff jobs were kind enough to give me an opportunity on Desperate Housewives. That was a freelance assignment. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to talk about the highlights real quick, uh, the highlights for me were uh, the season I spent on Dawson's Creek was was a great year. Mm -hmm. I I really enjoyed that that job. Um, uh, Star Trek Enterprise, the episode I wrote of that was a freelance assignment that was uh uh i was brought aboard to do the script by uh, my friend chris black who was uh, I, th- I believe he's co-executive producer on that series working for brandon braga mm-hmm. star trek if you call if you recall way back at the beginning of this interview i said i was a big star trek fan and uh to write an episode of a star trek series oh yeah was an absolute dream come true I kind of waited my whole life to be able to do this. Yeah. And I'm so happy I got the opportunity. But I'll tell you this. What I didn't expect was how um, frustrating it was to write an episode of Star Trek. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's partially because my – mountainous Bible or – that is part of it, yeah. Um, But it's more like the tone of that show fought my own sensibilities as a writer. Mm -hmm. If I – comedy i want to write something that's really funny you know uh if i want if i try to do drama i want something very dramatic and there's a very even kind of middle of the road tone and sensibility to star trek Hmm. you can be a little bit funny you can be slightly dramatic you know they would say you're being extraordinarily dramatic because the stakes are life and death but the the feeling of that show is is if you've seen enough Star Trek, you kind of know mostly how the stories are going to play out to a certain extent. You know the tone of the show. Mm-hmm. And I found it really frustrating to conform to that, you know, which is why I'm I'm in the camp that when J.J. Abrams went on to kind of reinvent and do his what people call Star Warsian version <laughs> of the Star Trek universe, yeah. I kind of enjoyed that because it's like, oh, all right, here's here's somebody who's doing the things of Star Trek that – that I felt constricted by and wished I could have done. Hmm. I wished I could have had, you know, more emotional scenes or, or funnier scenes. And, and Abrams was allowed to kind of do that. Hmm. So I, I, I salute him for that. Um, Star Trek, uh, Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek was great because I supervised the writing room for season four of Dawson's Creek. I was a head writer, mm-hmm. which meant that I was in charge of, I think it was probably seven or eight writers who were all very smart, very intelligent and made the job, you know, a pleasure. And I was working for Greg Berlanti, who was oh, having cool. a great, yeah, he was, he was having a great year and hired me because he knew he wouldn't be able to to be in the writer's room on a daily basis. I think he had just directed a movie and was putting that out there in the world and had other obligations. So I ran the writer's room. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, I didn't get a chance to write a Dawson's Creek script of my own till the very end of that season. Hmm. And the process is the writers work in Los Angeles. The show is actually shot in Wilmington, California, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. Hmm. And, it's beautiful down there. The, the way they work is once a writer's script enters into its production cycle and filming begin, begins in Wilmington, the Los Angeles writer is flown down to Wilmington and stays there for at least the week of the shoot. Hmm. Maybe 
I think he's there for the week of prep too. And he's considered to be the expert on that particular episode because he wrote it. The script is his. And what I loved about the Dawson's Creek writing experience was that unlike a sitcom room where you have 12 funny guys pitching jokes, pitching jokes into a script that may only have your name on it, uh, a lot of times, you know, a script that has your name on it, if it's a sitcom sitcom script, is filled with other people's work. There's tons. It's a it's a very much a group, you know, um, production. But on Dawson's Creek, it was basically just your writing. And if the executive producer felt he needed or wanted to adjust anything you wrote, he overwrote you in certain mm-hmm. scenes. But Dawson's Creek wound up being a script. When I wrote my Dawson's Creek episode, I'd say 95% of the writing was mine. Mm. And Greg Lanty had wanted to adjust a couple of scenes and he wrote, you know, what he wanted to write. Uh, but I love that because coming from the world of sitcoms where, you know, it would be my name or my name and my partner's name, there would be like a dozen people who's also had lines of dialogue. And, and I, I love the fact that Dawson's Creek script is is you know, essentially mine. Mm. mine. And uh, they they flew me down to Wilmington, and I was there. And first time I've been down in the South. It's gorgeous there, and uh, and uh, spectacular scenery. Um, the uh, it ended up being a great episode. It was uh, I wrote the episode where all the all the characters graduate from high school, and you see them actually go through the ceremony and and. Uh, there's a scene where, and it wasn't my idea. It was a neck. It was an executive's idea to have the sprinklers all come on during the graduation ceremony. And of course, uh-huh. I thought, you know, I've seen that before. I wasn't keen on that idea, but you know, the, the 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 better aspects of that idea are that all right. It's it's sort of a liberating moment. Um, the fun part was seeing Katie Holmes get wet. Uh, you have to have the sprinklers, you know, just kind of douse her. And uh, she she kind of yelled over at me. She said, Alan Cross, you're next. I'm going to turn the hose on you, you know. And <laughs> so, you know, I can always tell people Katie Hose threatened to hose me down. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, Dawson's Creek was was great. I, I really enjoyed that show. And uh, Desperate Housewives was uh was interesting. I was sort of the invited guest mm-hmm. and I got the opportunity to do a freelance for them because I, my, uh, my former writing partner had gotten a job on that show and he was kind enough to give me the opportunity to come in and pitch ideas to their staff. Mm-hmm. So talk about pressure. And it's something I, I, I really tell new writers to, to get this skill down. Pitching skill is really important. And I, I tell people, you know, practice your pitch. Rehearse it, rehearse it, know it, know it in and out. And the goal is not to be robotic when you're actually pitching it to the people you, you're actually supposed to be pitching to, but to know your material so well that it feels natural, that you're not spending your mental energy trying to remember what happens next after this character leaves the barn or whatever. It's more like you can concentrate on your delivery style and you can pause and emphasize and really do an acting job of selling what you're saying as opposed to just trying to remember the content of what you were saying. I think it's mm-hmm. really So I had to pitch to Mark Cherry and the writing staff, pitch them several ideas, 
one idea of which got me the job essentially to do a freelance. And it was a, it was a risky, it was a risky idea because I had read that this happened to Mark Cherry in his own life. And I knew that this idea that I was about to pitch him, he would recognize. Oh, as, really? Yeah. And I thought he's either going to react to this pretty well, or he's going to go, Oh dear God, no, not that idea. And maybe even, you know, have me leave the room. So, uh, what happened to Mark Cherry was he had an agent who was stealing from him. Mm-hmm. And I'd read about that, knew about it. So one of my pitches was that the housewives, uh, one of the housewives had an agent. I think she was, um, uh, she was a st- story artist or, a, um, like, a a children's book author or a, or a painter maybe. Mm-hmm. And she had an agent and she finds out the agent is stealing from her. And fortunately, Mark Cherry liked that idea. And of course, obviously responded to it because of his own personal circumstance and allowed me to do an episode. So I got to sit with the staff of Desperate Housewives in their, I think it was their, was it their first season? It might have been their second season. And uh, it was a, it was a pretty great staff. They did everything together though. They, they kind of gang banged. We call it gang banging, where the staff kind of breaks into smaller groups, and every sm- every subgroup takes a set of scenes in mm-hmm. one episode, and they write those scenes, and then all the groups put all their scenes together, they're cobbled together, and that becomes the episode. Wow! So, though this script had my name on it, it was it was a complete group effort, like a workshop thing. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much, exactly. That's how they operated. They. My take, my, my take of how Desperate Housewives work in terms of writing the scripts every episode seemed to be that uh, uh, they would write a draft, assemble it, and it was okay. It'd be a, a decent, solid first draft. Get notes, do it again, put together the second draft. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. You know, I was pretty happy with the second draft. I thought, you know, this only needs a, a minor tweaking and it's good to go. Third draft I thought was great. Shoot this thing. But they don't stop there. They get more notes, rethink stuff. They do a fourth draft, a fifth draft, a sixth draft. Wow. And then things like they have an ongoing serialized mystery so that uh, they're constantly juggling, well, how much of the mystery do we reveal in the previous episode? Let's reveal that much of the mystery in, in the previous episode before yours. Oh, no, wait. Let's not... Let's not divulge that there. Let's let's move it into your episode. You know, they're constantly juggling and adjusting the the ongoing mystery and how mm-hmm. much it plays out in your episode. That's something that was that I wasn't even left to me. I was kind of left out of those discussions because it was their ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was pretty interesting. They kind of I thought they did sort of needless rewrites after a certain point. Like this thing really you know, by the third or fourth draft, it was in really good shape. You, you could have filmed it. And the draft we ended up shooting was also in terrific shape, but just sort of, eh, you know, there's, it wasn't an efficient machine. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an efficient machine. But, you know, that show was very well regarded uh, and has obviously lasted, you know, however long it's lasted, seven years or something. So, you know, mm. who who am I to judge? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so now at, at what point, cause you, you actually wrote, uh, a sci-fi adventure novel called The Secret Insiders. Um, at what point yeah. during all of this did, did you have the time to write a novel? Yeah. Well, that's, 
happened only more recently, mm-hmm. more recently. And it's been harder for me, and I suppose because of my age and just the way the marketplace is, has, has kind of evolved, it's been hard for me to get staff jobs. Mm-hmm. So I have more time. And so that the more time I have allows me to kind of figure out, well, all right, what can I do besides, you know, writing more spec scripts or that kind of thing? So I, I decided, well, let me try writing a, a young adult book. And, um, you know, a lot of it just is sort of a valentine to uh, the books I enjoyed when I was a kid. Mm. You know, I, I, when I was when I was a kid, there were these really old boys books uh, starring a character called Tom Swift. Mm. And it, it's hysterical to me because Tom Swift, I think, originated back in maybe the 20s or the 30s. And they were sci-fi books. But sci-fi in the 20s and the 30s was like the books had titles that went like uh, Tom Swift and his amazing transistor radio. You know, it was like, <laughs> in the 30s, it was like, ooh, state of the art. And yeah. then in the 40s, they kind of, you know, they said, oh, now the books had titles like Tom Swift and the amazing moon satellite. It's like, oh, all right. You know, by the time I read the books, which was in the late mid mid to late 60s, they had titles like Tom Swift and the Electro Pulse Sonic Gyrator Scope. You know, <laughs> they were trying to stay one step ahead of whatever yeah. technology was. So I, I love that. I love Johnny Quest, the old Hanna-Barbera cartoon show. And I just wanted to do a book, you know, about uh, teenage boys that go on some amazing sci-fi adventure. And, and what they find out is there's a level of technology that is secret to the outside world that our level of technology is much more advanced and and there's a group of people that kind of uh, protect this technology and only use it you know when you need to save the world and the plot of my story is well this just happens to be one of those times you know mm. when you need to save the world and anyway so I'm still I'm still trying to get that thing published yeah. but uh, yeah it's sort of like the next adventure yeah and, you know we'll see how that goes. Very cool, very cool. Well, um, we're we're coming to the end of the time here. Uh, boy, it's flown by. Sure. Um, and so right now you're working as a as a copywriter for Sony Entertainment. Right, I've done work for them for their uh, video game releases. I did some work on uh, Resistance Two, and uh, that's a, that's flexing a different muscle too. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, what I did for them was was script related, they uh, commercial scripts. You know, so that yeah. was fun. That yeah. was fun. Yeah. Cool. So, so we always end with breaking in tips. So, if somebody were starting the process right now, um, what advice would you have for them for breaking into TV? Yeah, those are those are the questions. Uh, <laughs> I'll I'll, t- I'll say this: in my career, I've bounced from half-hour sitcoms to half-hour single cameras to one-hour. Dramas, sci-fi, you know, uh, soap opera, teen shows. I've kind of been all over the map. And I believe it's, it's hurt my career in the sense that agents, studio and network executives, they want to be able to brand you. They want to know what kind of writer you are. Are you mm. a comic writer? Are you a drama writer? Are you a, a teen writer? Or are you, you know, an adult drama, edgy, uh, you know, cable writer? So if you're trying to break in and you're trying to write spec scripts, you know, the old advice about writing what you like, what's your passion makes sense. I would say don't write a comedy and write an edgy drama as your two scripts you're going to send out to people. 
that will tend to kind of confuse them. Write mm. two comedies if you like comedy. Write two dramas if you're into drama. But don't try and mix and match the, the genres just yet. Um, uh, set the bar really high. I think all of us have seen enough television, and especially the last few years, I'm so impressed by shows like Mad Men is a favorite of mine, Breaking Bad is mm. another favorite of mine, where the quality and the execution of the writing, for me, is at an astonishingly high level. It's, it's brilliant, great work. You know, there are examples where the, the bar is set very high, aspire to that, because we've, we've all seen enough television where the bar is set very low and you go, well, that lame joke or that lame drama scene got on TV and got produced. My spec script doesn't have to try that hard. It's just TV. I wouldn't have that attitude. I would, I would shoot for the moon. I would try your, your best, you know, aspire to brilliance in any way you can. Um, you know, uh, Finding an agent, getting read. Uh, you know, I did it by literally getting a list, I think from the WGA, the Writers Guild, um, of agencies, talent agencies that were willing to read unsolicited manuscripts. Mm -hmm. The philosophy is these agencies are not going to be your top tier agents, obviously, but there's somebody who might be willing to meet you and rep you. And then you have official representation and your scripts can therefore be sent out and guaranteed to be read by the people looking to staff up. Mm -hmm. So um, I, that's the way I would recommend going about it. There's all kinds of different ways. Internships. Uh, I had an internship that I didn't mention at MTM the Mary Tyler Moore production company back when it existed. And it allowed me to be on the lot for the first time and meet people. Internships, the Warner Brothers writers program, any kind of writers program that you can get into, uh, get a job as the writing assistant on a staff show. If you can, I know mm. it's got a lot of competition, but there's, I hear a lot of producers will give their writing assistant an episode. And then, you know, talk about a great opportunity to actually get a produced credit and, an op you know, a chance to sell yourself uh, to the next show down the road. Um, what else about writing? Well, that's a lot of great tips right there. I think so. Yep. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> there come the dogs. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're my dogs. Yeah, so yeah. just kind of signaling the end. All yeah. right. Cool. But, well, uh, that's that's a great place to end up. So, um, and we're right. definitely uh, to the full extent of our time here. But I really, really appreciate you taking the time and uh, and coming full video like this. That's great. <laughs> and uh, and sharing some really, really neat stories. Uh, I loved a lot of those shows, and and it sounds like uh, you've had some great, great experiences in the industry. You know, I really have. I really have. You know, like I say, there's a there's a light and a dark side to everything in life, but. You know, at the end of the day, seeing your, seeing your ideas realized just a few days later, you walk onto a set and there's a scene that just existed in your mind, watching it play out. There's nothing else like that. You yeah. know, it's, it's definitely for everybody out there trying to get in. Yeah, it's worth it. Definitely, you know, give it your all, put your heart into it. And, you know, I, I wish you all the best. Very cool. Well, thanks so much again and uh, best of luck to you. All right, thanks. Thanks, okay. Chris. Bye-bye. Okay. Right. Bye. -bye. Bye.
I hope you enjoyed the interview with Alan Cross. Boy, he had a lot of great stories to tell. Um, as promised, this is the time for our weekly video tips all about holding the camera steady. Enjoy. On this week's video tips, we're going to talk about something that is going to be practical to you, whether you're shooting your next independent feature or whether you're just the designated picture taker during this holiday season, and that is holding the camera steady. Now, of course, you can have your camera on a tripod, and tripods are highly recommended for holding the camera steady, but you don't always have the opportunity to have a tripod, say, for instance, at a holiday gathering, and also you sometimes need to go for a different kind of shot. Say, for instance, if you're following somebody um, during an event, uh, like if you're shooting a wedding, or if, if you want that ENG kind of look in your independent short film. Even with a camera like this, a point and shoot, my wife, she loves taking pictures. And, and I see her, and I, ho I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but she'll focus, and then after she focuses, then take the shot. Or one thing she'll do is she'll take the shot like this. Both of those things are, are easy mistakes that you might make when you're taking a picture. When you do focus the shot, make sure that you don't move the camera after you focus because you've just changed where it's focused. And when you when you are taking the picture, you just squeeze without moving the camera and that avoids camera shake. So those are some, some simple, easy things that you probably already know. There are some other things. Think of a, a tree, for example. A tree has a branch and as it sways, the end of the branch sways a lot more. See my hand here. It's moving a lot more than up top. And that's a principle with holding a camera as well. If I hold a camera out here, there's a lot more sway. If I pull my elbow into my body, all of a sudden, the camera is not moving anywhere near as much. That also helps when you're holding the camera for a long period of time. Maybe it's a, it's a video camera and you're shooting a wedding, maybe not professionally, but you're just the guy who's got the camera. As you shoot, if you're holding your camera out like this, you're much more likely to sway around. And also, if you imagine holding a broomstick from its end, the further you hold the weight out, it's also going to become a lot more tiring. And when your muscles get tired, it's hard to hold the camera steady. So get your arms in. That's the first thing, whether you're taking a still picture or a video. When your arms are closer to your body, it's a lot easier to hold the camera straight. But then the second thing is get a second point of contact on the camera. If you can, even what I, I, I used to do when shooting a lot of weddings um, many, many years ago, is I would just grab this side of the screen. And that is a second point of contact that can help to hold the camera steady. Again, so if you've, if you've pulled your arms in and you're holding the screen or holding the lens on, on a DSLR, um, that's a second point of contact. One trick that I, that I often do, uh, of course, this camera is on a rig right now, but I will use the strap as another point of contact. So with the strap behind my head, I pull tight on the strap and as I'm pulling that is a point of contact that helps to hold the camera steady so that as I as I shoot I've got one hand 
the other hand, and the strap holding the camera steady. So those are all things that you can do even without any added gear. But there is some extra gear that will help you to hold the camera steady. Say, for instance, there's a whole pile of different um, rigs, they're called, on the market. And rigs can be, you know, a little piece of metal that give you an extra added grip. They can be something big like this. This is a, actually a Steady Freddy from camcrane.com. And it lets you hold a lot of extra things. Say, for instance, if you have a screen like this small HD screen, excellent LCD screen, um, if you've got lights that you need to attach or an extra microphone, what this particular one allows you to do is keep your arms in close to your body and yet still have the camera a little bit further in front. So you've got those two points of contact and you can hang any other things that you need on the top and move the camera around like this. It helps to keep the camera steady. And I think it's it's great if you have a camcorder, something that focuses really easily. Um, but what happens if you have a DSLR is sometimes you need to adjust the focus. And this is very heavy on this arm to go adjust the focus. Not terribly practical. So that's where a shoulder rig comes in. This shoulder rig from Indie System, the air support, is amazing and amazing value. What you're going to see in most shoulder supports is some kind of a rail system. And what the rails do is they let you attach various things that hold different parts of, of the camera and are adjustable. Say, for instance, um, at the back, I have a, a bar here that goes out to something that I can put on my shoulder. So there's my point of contact and also something that lets me rest the weight of the camera on on the back. Then as well, you'll notice that there is a little focus ring here that comes down to a thumb controller at the bottom. So I can actually physically control the focus of the camera with my thumb. So that means that I can be carrying the weight with my arms, even press them again into my body. I can have an extra point of contact up here on my shoulder, also carrying the weight, and yet still adjust the focus. Now, unfortunately, with most shoulder rigs, if you want to adjust the zoom, you're stuck. You got to still pull it from up here. But with this as an example, at least you've got two other points of contact and two other points that are carrying the weight when you move your one hand up here to adjust things. But this way, with a shoulder rig like this, you can hold the camera in an incredibly st stable way and also hold it for a long period of time without getting tired. DSLR cameras are awesome. Um, they're amazing pieces of equipment, but uh, it can be harder to control the focus because there's a more shallow depth of field, which often we want when we're, when we're pursuing um, film projects. We want to imitate that film look, but you have to have a way to control the focus as you're holding it steady. The other thing is that they don't have a lot of the same uh, stabilization built in as, as camcorders have. Camcorders often have great optical stabilizers. Um, even though you've got IS or, or VC or, or whatever the manufacturing calls it for different kinds of DSLR lenses, it's just not the same as, as camcorders can do. And that's why something like this shoulder rig from Indie System, uh, the air support for actually only $399, 
is an excellent, excellent piece of equipment. They actually have attachments. You can, you can change this here to be pressing against your chest. Some people like that sort of gun kind of, of, uh, of control pressing against you. For me, I like the weight to actually be on my shoulder. Um, but no matter which one you do, it's, it's adjustable. You can also adjust it to your, your size very easily. These easy thumb knobs let you uh, not only adjust it really easily, but also collapse it when you're done. So this shoulder rig from Indy System is an excellent one and excellent value. I highly recommend it. Um, and like I said, only $399. I found shoulder rigs going up as high as $1,200, $1,500. And this one has the, the, the follow focus built in to that price. So excellent, excellent value. The Steady Freddy is a great value as well, though, as I said, more practical for a camcorder. If you have a DSLR, I would suggest paying the extra money and getting something with that follow focus built in. So to recap, when you're holding any kind of camera, whether it be a digital still camera or a camcorder or a DSLR, you've got to get your arms in the center of gravity towards your own. You've got to go for additional points of contact if it's heavy over a long period of time, you've got to make sure that you've got some other kind of support. And if it's just a camcorder, which camcorders are great for following focus easily, you can go for a physical cage on its own, like this Steady Freddy from CamCrane.com, which incidentally is only $199. Not as practical for a DSLR. If you have a DSLR, you need something with a follow focus. And for price, I don't think you can beat this one from IndieSystem.com. The Air Support, $399 and you've got the follow focus built in. This is Gray Jones from tvwriterpodcast.com. want to thank our sponsors of this week's video tips, camcrane.com, Comely Productions, makers of the Steady Friday, also the Comely Crane, and also indiesystem.com, makers of the air support, and lots of other things like jibs and sliders. Go check them out. Until next time, happy shooting! That's all I have for today. I want to urge you to follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle. That way you can get all the latest updates, including who is coming up in interviews. And one big one is coming up this Friday. Pamela Douglas, author of this new third edition of Writing the TV Drama Series. Make sure you do submit your questions before Thursday to mail at tvwriterpodcast.com because you just might win a copy of Ross Brown's book. Bite-sized television, all about writing a web series. So make sure you do follow on Twitter to find out that stuff. You can also go to tvwriterpodcast.com for lots of great resources, including a database of TV writers on Twitter, which has hit 900 writers and continues to climb. You can find back episodes there or at blip.tv slash tvwriterpodcast. Also make sure you join the Facebook group, you can just search for TV Writer Podcast on Facebook and you'll find it. Any comments, questions, or requests, you can always send email to mail at tvwriterpodcast.com. So until next time, have a great writing week. Bye-bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. And by Final Draft Script Writing Software, the entertainment industry standard for script writing worldwide. <laughs>